book of Revelation with you, the very end of the, of the Bible. Um, this past week, some of our staff hosted a man by the name of Warren Jansen. He's from uh, British Columbia, but he runs an international ministry called Send. Look it up on the internet sometime, or no. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the largest missionary sending agencies in the world. They send missionaries to unreached people groups around the world. And one of the questions I had for him, because I've heard people say this, and I just wanted to hear from him because he's been into these places where Christianity is completely shut down, suppressed by the government. And my question was, is it true? Is it true that in these countries where Christianity is condemned and outlawed even, uh, is it true that the favorite book in the Bible of those being persecuted is the book of Revelation? He said, absolutely, because they know God wins. And I just hope you're reading through the book of Revelation. This, this book, you know, some people say it's a book of fear, you know, it's a book of, uh, it, it, it makes me afraid. Okay, but it's a book of hope. That's what it is. It's a book of hope because we learn that God wins. It's good to look at it with you. Um, we all, I guess, like to read different genre. My, mine, I love biographies. Um, if you were to ask me what are my top ten biographies, maybe the one I just finished. I mentioned it last time I was here. Ulysses S. Grant took me forever to read it. But if I were to go back a few years, also in the top ten would be a, would be a biography by, by about a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you know the name. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian and a pastor in Germany. And in 1939, to escape the escalating war there as Germany invaded Poland, uh, he escaped to New York City. And um, while he was in New York City, his conscience just started to bother him. How can I be here when I want the church in Germany to grow and develop and, and, and do what is right in the, in the face of this terrible thing that's happening in Germany and Europe? And so within a month... He went back to Germany, and it was there that he developed this underground seminary uh, that opposed Hitler and the Third Reich. Wow. It was in 1943, a few years later, he was arrested by the Gestapo for doing those very things. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? And yet, even in prison, he continued to teach the Word of God to fellow prisoners, when they were being marched to a different prison or being marched to the gallows, he preached the word of God to them, inspiring hope. What would that have been like? And then on April 9, 1945, just less than a month before Germany surrendered, we just see how Hitler just wanted to do away with his enemies. Uh, he was hanged. And just before he was hanged, these were his final words. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Where do, where do words like that come from? Where, where, does, where, where does that kind of, I don't know, um, confidence, mindset, perspective come from? It comes from being exposed to the Word of God. <laughs> and we don't know exactly what was in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's mind, but I imagine words like this from Jesus 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. When somebody puts their faith in Jesus, we receive eternal life, but it's not just eternal life, it's life beginning right now. These words of Jesus really reflect a tension that's throughout the Bible from Genesis all the way for Revelation. The enemy seeks to steal and kill and destroy our souls, our bodies. But God gives life. And that tension is felt throughout the Bible, but it's especially felt in the chapter we're going to look at today in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. I hope we'll come away with a few of these thoughts. Um, what our role is in this dark world, when I say dark world, I mean spiritually dark world, spiritually dark and lost world. What we should expect to see happen when we live out this role. And then what the outcome will be for those who endure in their role. All right? So let's get started. This is chapter 11. We're just going to look at the first three verses to get the big picture of what's happening in chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during these 1,260 days. (laughs) I should probably tell you right now that of all the chapters in the Bible, This is known to be one of the most difficult to understand. So welcome to the chapel this morning as we get to try to figure this out together. There's so much there we could talk about. Let me just mention just a couple of things, and it's this. In his sovereignty, God turns over the outer courtyard to the nations only for them to trample it for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And... In his sovereignty, God raises up and gives power to two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days. Quick, do the math. 42 months, three and a half years, right? Now, let me explain what we just read. In his sovereignty, God is going to allow the world to persecute Christians in the world. Now, let me me just pause for a moment. Even though the word world isn't here, I'm going to use the world several times. In Scripture, the world is used in several different ways. The world in the sense that it's the globe, how we think of the world, the globe. Another way the world is used is, you know, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves the world. But also world is used, especially by John in his gospel, in 1 John, 2 John, but here in Revelation, as a world system that stands opposed to God. And God in his sovereignty is going to allow the world to trample on believers, to persecute believers. Now I say in God's sovereignty, you know, C.S. Lewis said something like this, that, you know, Satan is on a leash. It's a long leash, but it is a leash. (laughs) Satan cannot do anything against God's people without God's permission. But for some reason, God allows this to happen. But simultaneously, concurrently, along with this persecution, two witnesses are going to be sent by God, and they are going to proclaim the word of God, the truth of God's word, during this difficult, difficult time. And so this tension is mounting, right? The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but God comes to give life. And so this great competition is happening. Concurrently, simultaneously, 
persecution, proclamation of God's word. This is what we could say about all of God's word, especially right now at this moment. The world will trample God's people, but God's word and mission cannot be stopped. Daniel Aiken, a favorite writer, says it this way. God's plan marches on. Sinful humanity has its say for a day, but the Lord God, the Almighty, has his say for all eternity. And the people said, Amen. Now we've got a big picture. These first few verses give us a big picture of what's happening in chapter 11. You have persecution. You have the proclamation of these two witnesses. Now, who are these two witnesses, and what is their message? Right? So the story goes on. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Okay, so that's understood. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is, it's, hard, it's hard to understand. Who are these prophets? There are many um, educated guesses as to who these prophets are. The list is long possibilities. But when we go back and look at the text, we can see different things, clues that, that so fire flashes from the mouths and consumes their enemies. Um, they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. They have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. And so the two figures who come to mind are Elijah and Moses from the Old Testament because they did very similar, similar miraculous things. It says, though, that these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. So, so what, is that, what does that mean? You know, it, it's interesting in the book of Revelation, more than a couple hundred times, there are references in words and phrases back to the Old Testament. And here we have a reference back to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, where servants of God are known as olive trees and lampstands. What does an olive tree do? It provides oil. What does a lampstand need? It needs oil. What does a lampstand do? It provides light. And so, who are these witnesses? They are servants of God who are light bearers. They provide light. What do we mean by that? They speak the truth. They speak the truth of the light of God into a, very, a spiritually very dark world. But it's not just that they are light. They also are given power. You can tell that from their miraculous signs. When Jesus sent out his witnesses... The very last thing Jesus said was, and you should wait here and receive power, and then you will be my witnesses nearby and far away. That's true for them. It's true for us. It was true for these two witnesses. They're the power of God. Power of God to do what? To speak the truth of the light of God into an incredibly spiritually dark world that was resistant and pushed back against God. That's these two witnesses. And so... Um, we, we have these two witnesses who are um, standing strong in the Spirit of God. But, but, but what 
what, what was their message? I think simply we could say this. Their message was one of judgment and repentance. Those are two very heavy words. Let me just break them down for a minute. You know, when you read through the Bible, it's really clear that God is holy. And that, that, that we are born in this world with a sinful nature. We are sinners. But we're also told throughout the Bible that God is a God of love. And even though he's going to punish sin, he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us to take the punishment of our sin onto himself so that we could have a relationship with God through simply faith in Christ. So our judgment has been placed on Jesus. Those who reject Jesus still face the punishment of God, the judgment of God. And that's what we see in Revelation. But they're not just proclaiming judgment, they're also proclaiming repentance. And we'll see in a little while that some people turn back to God. You know, Scripture is really clear that God doesn't want anyone to perish. Repentance is a, it, what it means is turning around and going the other way. It's somebody saying, I trust myself, I trust myself, I trust myself. No, I need a Savior, and I turn and I follow Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. I repent. That's what it means. It means to put my faith in Christ. And so their message is one of judgment and repentance. So, um, it's, it's, sort of like the, it's sort of like the ultimate, um, I don't know, fork in the road. That's what they're doing. It, it's the, you turn to Christ or suffer the judgment of God. It's the ultimate fork in the road. All of Scripture is really about the ultimate fork in the road. There's the, there's the path of wisdom. And that's, that's going God's way. There's the path of folly. That's choosing to, to stiff-arm God and say, no thanks. There's the middle path. But if you choose the middle path, by default, you choose the path of folly. And so these prophets are saying, just choose one or the other. What would it have been, what would it have been like to be a witness for Jesus? I was thinking about what, what it means to be a witness. You know, a witness is, is to be a representative. It means to be an ambassador. It means to be a spokesperson for somebody. Um, you know, if you are enthusiastic about something, you want to be a representative, an ambassador, a spokesperson. Maybe you love your company where you work. And so you're a spokesperson for that company. You're a, you're a champion for it. You are a witness for that company. Or maybe you come out of a family you really love, you, you appreciate and respect your family members, and so you are a witness for your family members. Pastor Ryan is a Michigan Wolverine fan. I don't know how you could ever be a witness for that, but I'm a witness for the Buckeyes, and I have the platform today, so I'm a, I'm a witness. Thank you. We were on vacation recently down in North Carolina. I had my big Ohio State shirt on, and I don't know how many people said OH to me. I thought, wow, this is awesome. They're everywhere, Buckeye Nation. You know, or Browns. I'm a witness for the Browns. I'm a representative for the Browns. I love the Browns. I have no idea what I'm going to do with the Guardians. Um, I've got to... I've got to figure that one out. Well, what would it have been like to be a witness? To be a, the first witnesses sent out by Jesus, the representatives. And, and I want to just jump into John chapter 10. We're, I'm going to show you a, a few other verses from John chapter 10. But it goes like this. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles as witnesses, as representatives, with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the king of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. 
sins, give as freely as you have received. What would that have been like? Isn't that just amazing? Look at, look at what you get to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of that party? Yeah, I, sign me up. I want to be a follower of Jesus. But <clears throat> deeper into the chapter, we get the rest of the story, and you begin to wonder, do I really want to be a follower of Jesus? He goes on. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves, but beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. Now, true, opposition does give you opportunities, but let's face it, there is opposition. Simply said, as witnesses, we should never be surprised at opposition. That was true of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was true of Jesus, true of Jesus' followers. If you try to be a witness, a representative for Christ where you work and live and play, chances are you will face some opposition. That is just the way it goes. We face opposition. Sometimes I think of, of those last words of Jesus as he sent out his, as he told his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and give you power, and then you go out and be my witnesses. The word witness comes from the Greek word martis, which is where we get the word martyr. <laughs> martyr means to give up your life for something you believe. So, we shouldn't be surprised. We should never be surprised if we face opposition for what we believe. So these witnesses were not surprised either. Watch, let's, let's read what happens. When they, complete their when they completed their testimony, the beast... Now, we're going to come back to that. That's the Antichrist. The beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world and gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. I don't know if I, I think I might have skipped a word there, but you get the idea. They're killed. <laughs> These two witnesses are killed by the beast, the Antichrist. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about the Antichrist next week. Be sure you're here. I have a few more words to say about that. And uh, uh, he's going to kill them, and their bodies will be left in the streets of Jerusalem. Sodom and Egypt, what does that mean? Sodom means wickedness. Egypt stands for idolatry. And they will be left in the streets for three and a half days, sort of mocking the time that Jesus was in the tomb. And this will be the result of the world, everybody in the world who stands opposed to God. And they will gloat over all of this, and it will be like Christmas time where they send presents to each other, celebrating that these two witnesses, these two servants of God, are dead. Now, just a sidebar comment. I mentioned next week we get into Revelation chapter 12 and 13. And, and, and the, the, the spiritual conflict in the world intensifies as we are introduced to Satan himself, the red dragon, as we're introduced to the Antichrist, as we're introduced to the false prophet, the unholy trinity. And then we're going to have a special guest, Dr. Bobby Gupta from India. India is perhaps the worst place to live as a Christian right now because of Hindu radicalism there. And he's going to be telling us stories 
spiritual conflict isn't just down the road. It's now. It's happening now. So I want you to be, make sure you're here and a part of that. And so these witnesses, they suffer death. But they should not be surprised. No believer should be surprised. Jesus said, all nations will hate you because you are my followers. None of us should ever be surprised if we face opposition of any kind. But Jesus goes on to say these words. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. We live with this tension all the time. The enemy who seeks to kill and steal and destroy, but God who gives life. And the truth is this. God cannot be stopped. God's word cannot be stopped. God's messengers and their message cannot be stopped. God gives life to those who endure. Watch what happens. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up, and terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. God honors his faithful servants. In the past, in this case, for all of us, God honors his faithful servants. Now, the story ends, and I won't show you the words, but the story ends with this, as, as they are resurrected into heaven, as they ascend into heaven, there's this massive earthquake in Jerusalem. And a tenth of the city is torn down. 7,000 people die. But in terror and in amazement, the rest of the community turns and gives glory to God. God doesn't want anybody to perish. The opportunity, the offer of repentance is to everyone. And some take that. Now, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. Um, let, let, me, let me back up and give us a, a broader context of what's going on before we look at the rest of chapter 11. And it's this. Um, back in chapter 5, we read that Jesus held the scroll which contained the future of world history and how things as we know it will come to an end. And that scroll has seven seals on it. And Jesus alone is, is able to take each of those seals off. And we got into chapter 6 and we see those seals taken off one at a time and each seal represents a judgment you get to the, sixth, or the seventh seal, and that opens up to the seven trumpets of judgment. You get through the seven trumpets of judgment, and we come to the seventh, and it opens up to the seven bowls of judgment. We aren't there yet. But what we're about to read is the seventh trumpet, and this is how it goes. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Does any part of what's said there take you back to Christmas time? Handel's Messiah? And he shall... I'll sing it for you. May I? And he... No, he shall reign forever and ever and ever, right? And then, this is how... 
Chapter 11 ends with these words. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. What this seventh trumpet does is opens a window for us to see the end of time. The end of time when, 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 when what all the prophets in the Old Testament, what they pointed toward, the time when God's kingdom would be established here on earth, what Jesus said would happen, his kingdom would come and be established here on earth. What we pray for, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very thing we long for, that, that, that our enemy, Satan, and all of his minions will be vanquished. That death will be vanquished that all of evil will be vanquished and done away with. That's coming. And this seventh trumpet, the very end of chapter 11, gives us a vision, a window to what, will be like, what it will be like one day. <clears throat> but that's that day. Today is July 25. <laughs> and between today and that day, we're called to do the very thing these two witnesses did. We're called to do the very thing Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. We are also called to be witnesses, representatives, ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Let me just put on the board, on the screen, three things that I think we need to think about. My role is to be a witness for Christ, a representative, a spokesperson. With my life, people should look at me and sense the kind of love that Jesus would have. In, in a sense, I, I should live my life the way Jesus would live my life if he were me. Loving people right where they are. But also unafraid to speak the truth in love and with grace. That's being a witness. Pointing to the message of Christ, oftentimes being a witness for Jesus means just telling my story of how I came into a relationship with Christ. The second thing, I think, is as his witness, I, I can expect opposition. You try to, try to run your business the way Jesus would run your business if he were you. Handle your money the way Jesus would handle your money if he were you. Run your marriage or your relationships or whatever the way Jesus would if he were you. Do that. You'll face opposition because we live in a spiritually dark world. I think this, the world's good in so many ways, but there are spiritual forces who stand against you to steal and kill and destroy. You can expect opposition. And the third thing would be this. God gives life to those who faithfully endure as his witnesses. Press on. Press on. I, 
Who has God put around you in your life? Who stands opposed to the gospel of Christ? Be there for them. Love them. Be the kind of witness God has called you to be and leave the results to God. Now, in this church, we often talk about my three. It could be four or five. But people whom God has placed around you, where you work, where you live, where you play. And in your mind, you might have someone right now. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody at the gym, somebody in your school, somebody on your team. I don't know who it is. But somebody who still is far from God. We don't know those who are his, but somebody who still does not want Jesus to be a part of their life. I can think of people. What I'd like to do right now is just sort of guide us through some prayer for ourselves and for those people that you have in mind. All right? Let's pray together. Lord, first of all, um, would you just hear our silent, quiet prayers of gratitude that you, that you called us to yourself and gave us life in Christ. Nothing that we ever did to earn that, purely because of your grace. Hear our silent, quiet prayers of gratitude. And now, God, there are people all around us. But there are several people, my three, my four, my five, whatever it is, that you have put on our hearts, people you have put in our lives. Would you make us right now just abundantly aware of the opportunity to represent you, to be your witness to them? Would you do that right now? Pray that way. And now, God, would you please give us uh, the wisdom, the, the, the measure of love we need to be a spokesperson for you, certainly with our lives showing the love of God, but giving us the, the strength and the, and the desire to even tell our story of how we came into a relationship with you. Would you pray that way just for a moment for yourself? And then lastly, with those people in mind, God, we pray for them. Only you can open eyes. Only you can open hearts. We pray that you would. We leave the results to you, God. Would you pray that way for a moment?
Thank you, God, for hearing our prayers and help us to be the kind of people, your people, the kind of church that thinks outside our walls. Thank you for your great grace. Help us to be reflections of that wherever we go this week. Help us to be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the day. Enjoy the week.